Hello, I'm Emily Bellet, founder of Vespod and author of Your Broke, Your Pre-Rich, and you're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. UK inflation rate rises to 40-year high. Why is that? And what is the cost of living crisis? How is it affecting me? And how to cope with the rising cost of living? What should we do about investing? To debunk these topics, I invited Iona Bain, founder of the Young Money blog, the first British blog to help young people to get grips with personal finance. She's the author of Own It, How Our Generation Can Invest Our Way to a Better Future. She stepped back from full-time blogging in 2021 to concentrate on our broadcast and journalism work. I hope you like it. Say hello to Rewarding Banking. With Chase Bank, you get 1% cash back on your everyday debit card spending for a year. A slick numberless debit card to help you keep your details private and round-the-clock access to the Chase customer support team if you ever need a hand. Download the Chase Banking app to open your free account. You must be over 18 and a UK resident to apply. Cashback exceptions apply. Remember that we are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. It's been amazing to see you um, on on TV. Uh, I know it's you know these are really tricky times, uh, giving financial tips to people with the the cost of living crisis. Can you talk a little bit about how do you approach this? Um, and maybe define for us what is the, the cost of living crisis? So the cost of living crisis refers to, um, I think, a combination of really high inflation that we have not seen for several generations and a much more specific energy crisis, which is feeding into inflation Um, and is a very big cause of the inflation problem that we're seeing at the moment. But it's not the only cause of that inflation problem. So if we'll if we can just unpack the two elements, I think that inflation, as I've said, is partly caused by this energy crisis that we've been seeing. But I also think that it is partly down to some of the decisions that have been made by central banks in recent times, um, particularly the decisions that were made around the COVID lockdowns to essentially pump so much money into the economy through quantitative easing, which was not new. It was first deployed in 2008 after the financial crash. And at that time, it was seen really as an emergency measure to keep money pumping around the economy. Um, and you could argue that that it was successful up to a point, although it did have a lot of very negative downstream consequences, especially for younger people, because it really inflated asset prices People who already owned assets um, saw the, the value of those assets go up and it really created for those people a virtuous cycle. Uh, but for everybody else locked out of asset ownership, um, it, it really contributed to them feeling poorer and poorer as time went on. Um, and then when we had COVID lockdowns um, around 2020 and 2021, uh, the Bank of England and the Fed in the US as well, to be fair, both kicked in with more rounds of quantitative easing. Again, it could be argued that they needed to do that at that time um, to, to help governments get through the crisis so that we could have schemes like furlough here in the UK. Um, but the consequences of that now, I think, are 
um, inflation that actually took most economists by surprise. But there were some people who were saying, look, this is a real risk here. If you keep printing money um, and you do so once the economy is opened back up again and everybody's out there spending again, um, there's a real risk that you end up pushing pushing up inflation. So I think that that's um, a very macroeconomic explanation for, for why we're seeing um, this cost of living crisis. But also we are having this very specific energy crisis, partly caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, given just how much the energy market in Europe is um, influenced by uh, the, the perception of, of uh, uh, Russian gas and the, and the supply of Russian gas. As soon as President Putin starts making noises about restricting that gas, it really freaks out energy markets and they start to build that into future prices. And then that's why you start to see prices spike. Now, here in the UK, we're not so reliant on Russian gas. No. We don't actually get that much directly from Russia, but we are very dependent on importing uh, um, energy from Europe. Um, so whatever happens in Europe has a knock-on effect for us. I think we're also starting to see the, the consequences of um, failures in the UK energy market. There's been a big debate around whether uh, UK energy suppliers have been effectively regulated enough, whether uh, we allowed too many to spring up when uh, energy prices were low. And as a result, um, they had very precarious business models. So as soon as energy prices started going up again, they would go bust and then the cost would be passed on to all customers. That is, in fact, what we are seeing now. And that's what's contributing to a rise in the standing charge on our energy bills, which is definitely not helping the situation, but also a lack of long term investment in energy infrastructure in the UK. Again, we're starting to see now um, the, the, the consequences of us failing to invest in all kinds of different energy here in the UK to give us greater energy security. So I would say very broadly speaking, those those are the main factors that are driving this current cost of living crisis. And we are seeing the impact, I mean, directly on, on our wallet. I think, you know, for household, for young people, it's been extremely difficult over the, the, the past few months, um, looking at energy bills, but to be honest, looking at everything else, looking at your, your groceries, um, you know, potentially cost of debt. So how, you know, what, what should we expect in the, in, in the short term and how can we adjust? I mean, there's, there's so much you can do, right? Mm. So... You asked a previous question as well about just how much this cost of living crisis is affecting the public. So I want to deal with that first before we talk about what what is within our control. I do think that we have to be very careful in the media and if we are um, in the position of giving financial information to the public, that we don't confuse predictions with facts, with guarantees. There have been lots of predictions thrown out there by consultancies about how much more the price cap could go up over the next 12 months. And the price cap, for people who, who don't know, it's essentially the maximum that can be charged by energy suppliers on default variable tariffs for average energy usage throughout the year. And, and that belies a lot of complications. Actually, that does not mean that... If you see the price cap at X pounds, that does not mean your energy bill will be X pounds per year. Yeah. It depends on your usage. So that's another very important fact to draw out there, because ultimately, the less you use, the less you will pay. Now, that doesn't mean we can simply, uh, you know, put on jumpers and 
turn off all the heating and keep energy usage to an absolute bare minimum this winter and that that will solve our problems. But we do need to make sure that, that, that we are conserving energy as much as possible, which is why it's a little bit controversial that we haven't as yet had any real effort from the government to tell people to conserve more energy this winter. I think there's just a fear that if they do that, it'll come across as um, out of touch and um, insulting and tone deaf, particularly for those on poorer incomes. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, so so it's important to state that the energy price cap is not what we will necessarily pay on our energy bills. And it is estimated to go up by various energy consultancies over the next year. But these are just predictions and they are based on what, um, you know, gas prices are doing at the moment. Uh, but this is a very dynamic, volatile market. And, you know, it, it is influenced by geopolitical factors. And we are seeing at the moment that the situation in Ukraine is very fluid. And actually, you know, we are seeing this surprise uh, fight back by the Ukrainians, um, which, you know, might change the complexion of the war. Again, we just don't know. But given all the uncertainties there, um, I think we need to be very careful not to say that prices will go up to this level in January and April next year. It's it's just a prediction based on what's happening at the moment. And it also depends on just how quickly the government could kick in with some of um, the uh, investment in shoring up our own energy supply and, and, and providing a bit more domestic energy supply. Um, so... I think that undoubtedly for a, a percentage of uh, people um, at the lower end of the income scale, this winter is going to be incredibly difficult. Um, and that is why the government have come under so much pressure to um, provide more emergency funding for those households, essentially, because there is no way that, that they can cut back their energy usage to the point where they could continue to, to to pay their energy bills. They needed to get that outside intervention. I guess the big debate now is to what extent is the cost of living crisis really affecting middle income households, yeah. those further up the income scale who um, previously have never had any problems paying their energy bills um, and perhaps have got savings, may have a mortgage. Um, and so for those households, a lot will depend on the decisions that are taken by the Bank of England over the next year. We're seeing interest rates going up to try to combat inflation. Um, again, there's a debate. Is that the right thing to do? Yeah. Some people are saying it's the only option that the Bank of England has. But actually, I've seen some interesting suggestions um, around preventing interest rates going up by providing funding for businesses to stop them having to put up prices, essentially, um, and that that could be a, a better tool for the Bank of England to use rather than to put up interest rates. But, you know, even if that is a is a perfectly good debate to have, I, I don't think the Bank of England are going to change time. <laughs> they are going to keep raising interest rates. So we've got to take that into account. And therefore, um, that will make the cost of borrowing more expensive. And if you've just taken on a mortgage or if you've got uh, credit card debt, you've got to take that into consideration uh, this winter. Um, so I think the jury is out about just how severe the cost of living crisis is going to be this this winter for middle income families. It's absolutely not in any dispute that it will be really, really tough for those lower down the income scale. And if, if we look on a you know, personal level, do you have some sort of a checklist of things we should look at at the moment and maybe, you know, 
money tips, what can I do for, for, for my finances and really sit down and look at these different, um, different items in your, in your budget, maybe. Mm -hmm. Well, firstly, um, let's just cover those people who might be in a more precarious position, um, just so that, you know, it looks like we're covering all bases here. Yeah. Because for those people, um, you know, time is of the essence. It's really important to act now. Um, I would say there are some fantastic organisations out there, even though they are getting really busy at the moment. They could be a real lifeline if you are struggling to pay your bills now. And understanding your rights and your options is really important here. Your energy supplier has a legal obligation to make sure that you uh, can keep up, you know, energy repayments. That doesn't mean they can whittle down your, your bills to a sum that you might deem affordable, which can be really frustrating. But if you have started to build up arrears and you are struggling to pay back those arrears, then speaking to your energy supplier should start this process whereby they consider what is affordable for you. You work with them and you come up with something that's that's sustainable. Um and that you avoid being put onto a prepayment meter, you avoid disconnection, you avoid those really dire consequences um, that, that you might otherwise experience if you just put your head in the sand, refuse to talk to your energy supplier and, and hope that they might leave you alone and not bother you. Unfortunately, that's just not how it works. And that's why I'm a, I'm a bit sceptical about the Don't Pay UK campaign, simply because, you know, it really relies on a huge number of people deciding all at once that they're going to boycott their energy supplier um, and yes, energy suppliers might struggle to make all those people take on prepayment meters, might struggle to get all those cases through the courts, get warrants for all those people and so on. But I wouldn't want to bet on it. And I think really important thing about managing your money is, is to try to be pragmatic um, and to try to, you know, take 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 the emotion out of it even though people will be feeling very emotive about this subject it's really important to always think about what's going to be in your interests and i would say right now the most important thing is to speak to your energy supplier and to have them on your side you don't want them you know you don't want to be at war with your energy supplier um but let's talk about that group of people who are on what you might call middle incomes who have been doing perfectly okay up till now and might be worried about the winter um as I said, you know, energy conservation is going to be the name of the game this winter. And I've already been thinking ahead. I got an electric blanket the other week. Um, I've got a, a draft excluder and a door curtain. I've been having a look to see whether I'm doing everything I can to, to insulate my flat and to keep it as warm and cosy as possible. Um, these are just sensible steps to take that will stand you in good stead for, for many, many winters to come. Um, and if you do that now, um, you're going to get ahead of all the people that might suddenly realise this is the right thing to do come November or December. And then they get down the shops and find out all the electric blankets have sold out, all the, you know, foil to put behind the radiators have sold out and so on. I'm not going to pretend that this is all going to magically make your bills more affordable, but it is one of those situations where every little helps, you know, and I have been making some conscious changes to my own lifestyle to just try and get into better habits um, as the winter comes. Um, and being aware, of course, of the, the government help that is on the way, um, that, that can be a, a source of reassurance, reassurance because we are going to get that £400 discount on our energy bills. It's going to be paid in, um, it's going to be paid across the winter in, in, in smaller chunks. We're not getting it all in one go. Um, but, but that's better than nothing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, as I said, there are no, there are no silver bullets here and we've got to be really careful 
you know, talking about these issues in the media that we don't make out that everybody can just, uh, you know, adopt these tips and, and therefore they'll be OK. But it is important to know what's inside, what's in your control. And what I would say as well is keep a close eye on your meeting readings um, and check that the direct debits are reflecting cutbacks that you're making, because we are seeing at the moment that some energy suppliers are trying it on and they are raising direct debits to levels that people think are a bit unreasonable and maybe um, opportunistic. So you can only disprove that if you are independently keeping your own meter readings, cutting back your energy, and then you can show your energy supplier, look, you're, you're not playing fair here. You really ought to be reducing my my direct debit to, to a level that reflects my real energy usage. Although bear in mind that that direct debit is supposed to be set at a level that reflects your usage throughout the year, including the winter months where you are expected to use more. So be realistic about how much you can cut back in the winter, because the most important thing here is we don't want anyone to to really compromise their health and their well-being. That's the most important thing. Talking about these issues, it's it's quite difficult because you're talking about to people in a lot of different situations. So exactly, always being extremely careful when 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 we read um, about you know the energy bill will completely explode and you'll end mm. up paying so much money and that can be really scary for people. So it's really you know going back to your personal situation and understanding you know what is what is the the help out there that's you know that that's available to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I wanted to to. Now shift a little bit and talk about investing, because mm -hmm. as our bills are increasing, um, the amount of money that we can save, the amount of money we can invest tend to be smaller. Some people don't save at all, don't invest at all for, 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 for the future. You wrote your most recent book uh, called Own It, How, How Our Generation Can Invest Our Way to a Better Future. Talk about Talks about investing, how to get started investing, how to think about long-term savings. I'd love to hear a little bit about your investing journey um, and what gets you to, <laughs> to Iona today. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I started investing in the mid-2010s and this was yeah. a few years after I'd started writing about money because when I um, set up my blog, um, I really was a total novice um, when it came to personal finance And I had an awful lot to learn. So really, it, it only um, it was only in the mid 2010s where I felt like I had started to accumulate enough knowledge and confidence to start investing. Um, and and since then, it has definitely been a journey, and I have um, been a bit experimental um, <laughs> in my uh, investing process. Partly uh, for the benefit of others, um, I've tried things so you don't have to, um, <laughs> and I've I've uh, definitely um, looked into various investing trends over the the in recent years. Um, some of which have definitely worked out better than others, and I think it it has definitely taught me so much about how investing has changed in many ways, but also how actually investing hasn't, and how the core principles of investing shouldn't change really and that if you can stick to those core principles through thick and thin then um you know you can come out of the other side of of all the volatility and the craziness that you see in the stock markets hopefully with some decent returns to show for it and can you remind us these these key principles of of, of investing absolutely so well first of all you've got to make sure that you are only investing money that that you are genuinely okay with with losing Um, so if you haven't yet saved enough money for a rainy day, 
if you have still got some very expensive debts that you need to pay off, um, then concentrate on, on those priorities, first of all. Uh, but if you have managed to deal with those issues and you are ready to invest, I would say don't put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, I know that in recent years we've started seeing some uh, some commentators, some analysts, some influencers online, you know, spurning that advice and and advocating this go big or go home approach whereby, <laughs> you know, you put all your money into this stock or put all your money into Bitcoin because ultimately fortune favours the brave. I mean, that was even the advertising slogan for a particular yeah. crypto brand, right? Um, they're really trading on this um, sense that you've got to take big risks if you want to win big. Um, and I think you can over-diversify. I think there's no point having a portfolio of 50 different investments and, you know, £50 pounds in, in each investment. You know, that that is definitely spreading yourself too thinly. But, you know, I'd say having a, a portfolio of around, I don't know, 10 to 15 assets, um, trying maybe not to be too concentrated in, in, in individual companies, although I have myself invested in individual companies as I've become more confident as an investor. But if you're starting out, then, then opting for funds, whether that's active or passive funds, um, to uh, really outsource the diversification and kind of get fund managers to decide on a sensible diversification for you. You know, that's a really nice quick route to diversification. And that's a really great way to make sure that if one part of the market doesn't do particularly well at one time, there's another asset in your portfolio that should actually behave in a different way, that, that should do all right and should stand up. Um, and therefore, overall, that's that's going to shield your portfolio from from the worst losses. You might not get the greatest possible gains in the market, but that kind of brings me on to the other principle, which is to ignore all the headlines, ignore all the the FOMO, ignore the noise. All, the no <laughs> all the noise, exactly. And 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 really figure out how long you're investing for, um, you know, how how much money you're hoping to generate, because we can't possibly have any guarantees here, but how much you're hoping to generate. Um, and, and what your asset, what your strategy is going to be, how much risk you're going to take um, and sticking to that strategy, reviewing it if things change and if markets really change as well. Um, but but overall, not going back and tinkering with your portfolio and, you know, swapping investments in and out every five minutes. That is that really is a recipe, not only for lower returns, but also for um, higher trading costs, because ultimately, whatever option you go for in the market in terms of, um, you know, a, a, a fund supermarket, a, a, an investing platform, a free trading app, whatever you choose, 10 to 1, you are going to have to pay to trade. Um, and I'd be quite suspicious and wary of any app or any platform that doesn't charge you for trading, because that's that's not good for your portfolio. Even if they're called free trading Exactly, apps. yeah. I, I mean, I have one. Um, and I, I think there are lots of good things about it. But I think that when you make, if you make trading too easy, it, you know, ultimately it then risks turning into a game. And it's not a game. This is something that you're doing for you in the long term to provide you with options and choices further down the line. It's not like going and betting on the Premier League this Saturday. You've got to be able to to distinguish between those two activities. And I think that's one of the big problems that we're seeing in, in the investing market at the moment. You know, young people understandably are looking for thrills, fun, excitement, uh, novelty, stimulation in their lives. And they're being drawn to this new technology that's providing 
investing as this as this type of activity, but it isn't. Um, so yeah, trying to screen out that noise um, and sticking with it for the long term. You know, we don't just say that you ought to invest for five years because that's a random time frame plucked out of thin air. This is, um, you know, based on lots of research that's been done over the years to show the, the, the minimum optimal time to be invested in the stock market to, to stand the greatest chance of getting a return. So yeah, kind of tune into the experts, tune into that, you know, wealth of research that's being done around investing and, and what works and stick with that. Um, and, and, you know, there are no guarantees, but I think given that we are in a very difficult, uncertain world now and you've got inflation, you know, running really high, um, if you just put your money in the bank, it's losing yeah. value, absolutely guaranteed to be losing value. And you work hard for your money. So you want your money to work hard for you. And I, I mean, I love these principles and I think we should all have them somewhere, you know, yes. on our desk, remove our investing apps. And I did a lot of these, these mistakes when I started um, investing. And, and that's maybe one way to, to actually learn. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I agree, which is why hopefully in the book, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm balanced about some of these investing trends. Because like, like you say, you know, we all have to learn from mistakes. We can't expect to start off as perfect investors and that's one reason why in the book I share my investing diary yeah. during the COVID pandemic because I think it's particularly important to to examine what goes on in those really volatile scary times it's all fine when stock markets seem to be kind of chugging away going up and up and up and up you know you can afford to be quite philosophical about these things when thing when the outlook is positive but when the chips are down and suddenly everything looks really scary yes. uh that's when you 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 want to kind of try to think about your own psychology and and how you're likely to react to that scenario and what other people are doing and what's going on out there um and and share some of the mistakes or some of the the, the the misguided ideas that you have during that time, which is what I did with my investing diary, uh, but also show how you're trying to learn from those mistakes so you can be a better investor in the future. And I love that you talk about the investing brain. Uh, I think mm. you know the, the psychology and emotions are, are a big part of the journey in, in, in investing. Yeah. How do you ignore the, the, this noise? Like in, in, in practice, do you just, you know, check your investment um, at certain times or... I think you've got to really put boundaries around your investing tech, because in the book, I talk about the fact that, you know, investing technology is uh, Pandora's box. You know, it's 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 not going away. It's here to stay. And it is changing the way that we invest money. Yeah. Um, but as with all technology, we have to um, we have to master it. We have to try to not let it control us. And I think when I downloaded uh, my first free trading app, I noticed just how effective that app was at engendering quite addictive behavior. With <laughs> They're good. So they're really, <laughs> they're good. really yeah. smart. <laughs> yeah, because they want you to stay on the app to keep trading and to and to do things that will long term make them money. Yeah. So they and would for, send for some people maybe that have uh, that haven't used these apps. There's mm. also these like social trading options where, yes. for example, I could follow your portfolio and I would be like, oh, wow, Ayana is buying this stock. I'm just really impressed. I'm going to do the yeah. same. And you don't necessarily do your research. Absolutely. And that taps into our need as human beings to be social. You know, we don't want to be on our own doing our, you know, doing everything in 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 a silo. We, we want to, to get ideas. We want to surround ourselves with other people. And social investing really taps into that tendency very 
effectively. And also because um, I'm reading a really interesting book at the moment called um, the, the Knowledge Illusion. And it's all about the fact that really we, we, we depend so much on the community for knowledge. We have to outsource so much of our understanding about things to, to the network out there. And that is, you know, that's just the way we are. But it makes us very vulnerable in certain ways. And it means that we have to really trust that the community is, um, is giving us knowledge that, that is accurate and reliable and that's, that's in our interests. Um, and so I think that with these, these apps, one of the issues I found was that they kept sending me notifications, including when there was new, when there were new IPOs on the market. So a new company in the US stock market was floating and it had a lot of, you know, buzz in the media. And there it was, it popped up as a notification on my phone alongside my WhatsApp messages and my emails. Um, <laughs> Switching off those notifications was a big game changer for me. Um, and also uh, just allowing myself maybe to go through that period of, of looking at the app very, very frequently and going a bit crazy and kind of talking about my portfolio constantly with the people around me. Uh, and, and at one point, you know, I really did think they were going to stage an intervention because I was just, <laughs> I was properly addicted. And but that gave me an insight into you know, how that can happen. But then I was able to to wean myself off it and get to a point where I could go several months without checking my portfolio and, and being able to understand, look, um, I, I know why I'm doing this. I'm not doing this for a quick win. I'm not doing this to hope to make 13%, 14% in the next month. I'm looking to do, I'm looking to make a, a return that's realistic, you know, over many years. So I'm just going to leave that. I, 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 I've come up with a strategy that I think is right for me. I'm just going to trust that the stock market will work its magic. Um, and, and so kind of shifting to that mindset was was really important for me. But yeah, you're absolutely right to bring up about social traders because they will show that they're making 14% in a month. And that creates FOMO. You hear about your friend. He's made 1,000% on Bitcoin. You think, well, I've only made 15% on my portfolio. I'm missing out. I'm a mug. Um, and so trying your best not not to kind of get too caught up in all that hype and all that FOMO is so important. And I think it just comes back to us generally having boundaries around tech, not spending too much time on social media, choosing accounts that are not going to engender that sense of FOMO in us. And, and instead, you know, following people who, who are giving sensible advice that we know is in our interests. It's easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> easier, easier said than done, but it's it's it just makes your life easier to sort of you know switch off from you know social media and the same for for your investment. Even if you're checking your you know pensions investments every day, that's that's actually not healthy, especially at the moment because you'll see <laughs> everything is going to be in the red. So what's going to be your motivation to put more money at work? So the the ideal scenario is you know automating your investment, putting money every month, what you can afford to live in the stock market for, for a long time. And this will be invested and you will be buying your assets at, at, at cheaper prices. And hopefully that will also increase your return in the long term. But it's, it's really hard for, for new investors um, to, and, and even for experienced investors to cope with that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also striking the right balance between having investments that, that, that you feel 
proud of that you think are actually making a difference out there in the real world and not having a portfolio that that is is basically setting you up to be an adrenaline junkie and again i think this is a big change that we've seen in the investment market in recent years you know investing doesn't have to be boring anymore all these apps talk about buying brands you love and you know hey you you love watching netflix well you can invest in them as a company and they've very cleverly tapped into that that fandom um, that, that that many of us have around brands. But, you know, as an individual, you've got to think, well, you know, just because, for instance, I love Greg's sausage rolls doesn't mean I should invest in Greg's as a company. I should go and check out. Is it is it a well-managed company? You know, um, what, what what's what? How does it manage its 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 staff, its 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 premises, you know, what, what's been its share history, you know, is it overvalued? Things like that. That's what you've got to consider. Um so yeah, just trying to divorce it from those parts, those parts of our lives where we do want to get thrills and we do want to have novelty and have fun. Seeing investing really is not part of that, but something that we do more as an act of long-term self-care. It's a bit like exercise and diet, you know, very often the things that we eat or the ways that we exercise, they're maybe not the most thrilling things in the world, but we get a deeper long-term satisfaction from knowing that they're good for us. And also looking at, at mega trends. I mean, we started to organize quarterly market updates with, with Vespod, where we look at the you know, macroeconomy and then we looked at, you know, the different trends and the outlook and maybe looking at, you know, healthcare or some, some, some sectors yeah. that, you know, will perform and even looking at tech and looking at, okay, maybe we're not going to see the level of valuation we've, we've seen before, but what's, what's good in tech? Where, where could we yes. go? So even if as an investor, you invest more passively um, into passive funds, you can just pick a few companies not necessarily buy stocks in these companies, but do your research, download the annual, annual reports, start looking into, into this, because to be honest, that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's a very important part of, of, of understanding the journey that you're going to go on as an investor. You know, one of the big questions I address in the book is, you know, what's your appetite to learn about this stuff? Because for some people, this is going to become a really fascinating, interesting, rewarding um, experience, finding out what's going on in the economy. And, and as you say, investing in not trends, because that's a word that I think we should try to avoid, but certainly developments and, and themes and ideas that, that are going to be really important, important to the future of the economy and society. You can get really excited and fired up about that. And that can lead to great returns in the long run. But equally, it's OK if you're the kind of person who you've got other priorities, you've got other things you want to do with your life. And really, you just want to it's just a means to an end. You just want to yeah. get enough returns to be able to get you know a decent pot of money for you further down the line. And if that's the case, you know, passive investing, drip feeding, you know, going through some of these platforms that that really, you know, take a lot of the decision making out of your hands. There is nothing wrong with that. You know, investing is not a competition. It doesn't show what a great person you are if you understand everything that's going on in the stock market. You know, so long as you are doing it um, and you are keeping your costs low and you're keeping an eye on things up to a point, then then you're winning. Um, and it's funny, I remember a few years ago, um, an ex of mine worked in the city and he worked for uh, a fund manager uh, and even though he worked in an active fund he was personally a purely passive investor and he used to talk to me all the time about how active fund management was a complete con and all these <laughs> all this stuff and and I kind of think he was a bit extreme and I think with certain types of investing active fund management still has a place but certainly costs really add up in the long run and therefore a a big part of investing really ought to be how can i get my costs down so that i'm i'm not paying over the odds as i invest 
Thank you so much, Ayana. Fascinating to have this, this investing conversation with you. Um, do you have anything else to add or any tip for, for people listening to, to this podcast? Um, what I would say is, the, the, for me, the most important aspect of uh, money management is not necessarily about understanding how all the products work and, and having a, a really good grasp of the numbers. Those things do matter, but but they come they come in due course once you have really looked at your own psychology and you've really examined your own relationship with money and you've taken a step back and, and asked yourself what really matters to you in life and then work back from that and figure out, you know, do, does the way that I use money match up with my values and match up with the way that I really want to spend my time. Because once you start asking that question, everything else follows. All the really sensible, wise decisions that you can make about your finances will follow on from you taking that basic decision to be much more aware of how you use money and whether you use it in a in an emotional way, whether you use it as, as a crutch, as a coping mechanism, if you like. Um, because I think the, the vast majority of people I come across, once they start going through that process of, of reevaluating their, their financial relationship, and it's not easy, but once they start, um, it, it, the, the consequences are, are so profound and so long lasting, and they have such amazing knock on effects for the rest of their life as well. So I'm just such a big advocate of taking a really big step back and 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 evaluating how you use money in your life and and not getting too worried about all the the technical details of money management because it's okay you know trust yourself you will be able to go out and find out what the right thing to do is and and you know it's not rocket science actually i think the financial industry does a great job of making this all <laughs> sound like rocket science but it isn't it's not that that complicated but what is difficult is you kind of um, understanding your own psychology and working with that psychology um, and and also just understanding that this is a lifelong process. You are never going to get to the point where you are perfect with money. I'm not. I'm still learning a huge amount. I don't call myself an expert and I really I'm not very keen when other people call me an expert because <laughs> I'm not. I'm just I'm just interested in it and I'm learning about it and I'm motivated to understand it a bit more, perhaps because of my job. But it's because I also think it's it's a really important fact of life and people who can um, kind of understand that and grasp that. I think f for them, you know, the rewards will be will be so great. And I'm not just talking about financial rewards. I'm talking about rewards in, in every sense. Yana, thank you so much. I think it's the time for everyone to order a copy of your book. <laughs> Own it. How our generation can invest our way to a better future. I've, I've learned so much from your book, from reading books about money. And for me, that's one of the best way. Uh, we talked about tech today. Just one way to switch off, make notes, you know, write whatever you want, do your exercises about money. It's just taking a break from, from all the noise. And I, I, I just find it the, the, the best way to learn. I couldn't agree more, although I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wallet. Please share this show with your friends and subscribe on your favorite platform. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps more people find our show. Join us again next Thursday for a super special episode of The Wallet. We'll be celebrating a major milestone with episode 100. 